1 Samuel chapter number 15, and I'm going to begin reading in verse number 1 now. If the Lord will allow us, we may use the entirety of this chapter this morning, but I'm, I'm going to read a, a large portion of it, and uh, I, I trust that you'll be patient in the reading of God's Word, and please have your heart open to it and fixed upon the narrative here. I believe God will use it in our hearts and minds this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 15 uh, begins this way. Verse number 1, the Bible says that Samuel also said unto Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek, and utterly destroy all that they have, and spare them not. But slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. And Saul gathered the people together, and numbered them, and tell him, two hundred thousand footmen, and ten thousand men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek, and laid wait in the valley. Saul said unto the Kenites, Go, depart, get you down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For ye showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul smote the Amalekites from Havilah until thou comest to shore that is over against Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, of the fatlings, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. But everything that was vile and refuse, that they destroyed utterly. Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be the king, for he has turned back from following me, and hath not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. When Samuel rose early to meet Saul, in the morning it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set him up a place, and is gone about and passed on, and gone down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Samuel said, What meaneth in this bleeding of the sheep in mine ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said unto Saul, Stay, stay, and I will tell thee what the Lord hath said to me this night. And he said unto him, Say on. Samuel said, When thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed thee king over Israel? And the Lord sent thee on a journey, and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they be consumed. Wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord? but didst fly upon the spoil, and didst evil in the sight of the Lord. Saul said unto Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and have gone the way which the Lord sent me, and have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. Let's pray together. Lord, we do love you. 
We thank You for the grace that uh, we felt this morning. Lord, I thank You for the grace You've ministered to my family. Lord, I pray that You'd help us this morning as we have gathered in Your house. And there's many things that, that press in and that crowd in in our thoughts and hearts and minds. But I pray You'd help us, Lord, to move all those things aside and set our eyes and our focus upon Jesus Christ this morning. And help us, Father, to walk a path of obedience. Lord, there may be some under the sound of my voice this morning who are struggling with this matter of obedience to You this morning. And, and, and Father, I just pray that this, this little message would do something, Lord, to stir them and to challenge them to put aside the idols of their self-rule and to instead crown Christ King of every matter of their life. Lord, we'll be sure to thank You for all the work that's done, for it'll be You that has done it. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want to preach to you for a few moments this morning on the disobedient king. King Saul's life is a tragic one. It seems that no sooner was he crowned king over Israel than he lost the crown. And very simply put, I think we can say it is for one singular reason, that Saul never learned the importance of obedience. You know, we live in a day today where society is roiling and boiling and seething and it feels as though the literal fabric of our culture and society is ripping apart at the seams. I think we're living in a day very similar to the day of Judges when every man does that which is right in his own eyes. We have allowed progressivism and we have allowed uh, Marxism to rip out from under our society the undergirding of absolute truth. And we live in a day of, of moral and, and emotional and, and factual and scientific relativism in which the only thing that anybody can agree on is that nobody can agree on anything. And I think that in the day that we live in, the greatest thing we can do for our children is teach them the importance of obedience. I think the greatest thing we can do for our society is to live obediently to the Lord. And I will tell you this, that your life, like Saul's life, will always be cut short. It will always be hindered and hampered. It will never reach what God has intended for it until we learn the truth of obedience. We learn it from a young age. Obedience is the very best thing. Amen? Uh, we learn it in little nursery rhymes and songs and Sunday school lessons. It is foundational to our concept of our relationship to God that He is the authority and that we are to be obedient. And yet somewhere in the human heart, somewhere in the human condition, we find even though we may have been saved 10, 20, 30, 40 years, though we may have gray hairs on our head, uh, though we may have many miles behind us in our history, we still seem to struggle with being obedient. And I think when we look at the life of Saul, and of this episode in particular, I think we learn some very important and instructive and cautionary things about this matter of obedience and disobedience. Put very simply, you know why Saul's life was shipwrecked? Because he would not obey God. And I want us to notice four simple thoughts this morning. I'll pray that the Lord will help me to be to be uh, swift in the preaching. And, and I, I, I always say this, if you'll listen fast, I'll preach fast. Amen. I want to say a word first off about the trail of disobedience. I will often ask my little boy when he does something wrong, which is quite often, I, I will often ask him, I'll say, why'd you do what you just did? Or I'll say, what were you thinking? Or I'll say, what, how did you expect that to go? 
Uh, we have these big blinds in our house. We've got what, big sliding glass doors in, in our den in our house and these big, uh, these big blinds. And ever since my boy's been, been little bitty since we moved into the house, we've stayed on to him and now to his little brother. Don't mess with those blinds. Uh, and, and very, very, really, the reason is because they're so out of date, I'm not sure they could be replaced. Amen? Uh, they, I, I don't know. I'd have to go to an antique shop to try to find something to replace them uh, if they went bad. And so, but they have a bad habit of taking and rolling cars into that into that door and rolling them into those blinds. And probably, you know, if I'm spending a full day, if I'm working from home, and if I'm if I'm sitting there with them in the, I mean, probably half a dozen times during the day, I'll hear a car crash into that door, and I'll see those blinds. There's some of those full length go flying. And I'll look at them, and then they'll look at me. And we'll just, for, I don't know, what feels like an eternity, we'll just kind of look at each other. I don't even have to say it anymore. They know what I'm about to say. They don't even have to say it anymore. I know what they're about to say. And I'll look at them, and I'll say, what were you thinking? What were you thinking? There is that moment where their act of disobedience has come to reality and to fruition and they have this look on their face like, I don't even know how I got to, how I got. I knew better. I knew what would happen. I knew this car had wheels on it. I knew where I was pushing it. But here I wound up. How did I get here? But you know, the same thing is true in your life and mine. Very often we will find ourselves in a mess, experiencing the chastening of God, dealing with the consequences of our sin. And we will very often have that same dumbfounded look on our face that a little child does when they've been caught doing wrong. And we'll look at ourselves, we'll look in the mirror with that same look and think, how did I get here? In many ways, I think Saul teaches us something about how we get there. And I want you to notice these truths. Look at verse number 4. And notice how this whole story begins. God has given the commandment to Saul. It's a very clear one. The Amalekites were cruel and unkind and unhelpful to the children of Israel when they were coming out of Egypt. And now the time has come. The sin of the Amalekites is full. God intends on judging the Amalekites. And Saul is going to be the vessel through which that is to be done. He has sent him with very clear, very simple instructions. Go find the Amalekites and kill them. Kill everything they got. Kill everything they own. Burn their houses to the ground. I do not want a stain of their iniquity left on the face of the earth. Uh, His command is utter. It is absolute. It is simple. And yet, look what happens. The Bible says in verse 4, Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telium, 200,000 footmen and 10,000 men of Judah. Let me pause there and say this. God gave him everything he needed to obey. God gave him the army he needed to obey. Uh, This is a vast, vast army. In this day, this time in history, and against this foe, this is more than enough to get the job done. Can I say this? God never commands us to do anything that He will not equip us to accomplish. There's nothing God commands us to do that we can say, well, God, I just couldn't help it. There's just no way I could have accomplished it. If God commanded it, then He'll equip you and enable you to do it. So Saul numbers all these people. And the Bible says in verse 5, Saul came to a city of Amalek and laid wait in the valley. Now, this is interesting. Verse 6 says, And Saul said unto the Kenites, Go, depart, get you down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For ye showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul smote the Amalekites from Havilah until thou comest to shore that is over against Egypt. Let me say, number one, we see the obedience commenced. Saul does everything that he's supposed to do in the initial beginning of this story. 
If we were to stop the story right there at verse number 7, we would call Saul a success. I think if we were to stop it right there, and if it meant that he had destroyed everything, I think God would have called him a success. The very reason that verse number 8 happens is because of the disobedience of Saul. You know, very often in our lives, we start with the intention to obey God. In fact, I sort of take for granted, maybe I'm ignorant, maybe I'm naive for doing this, but I sort of take for granted that most Christians want to do the right thing. I believe they want to do the right thing. How many times have you went to bed Saturday night planning on being at church Sunday morning? How many times have you got off work on a Wednesday saying, I'm going to go to church this Wednesday night? How many times have you laid down for a nap and set your alarm on a Sunday afternoon and said, I'm going to be back Sunday night? How many times have you said, marked out where you're going to read in your Bible, got your Bible reading plan, set it beside your Bible, set your Bible where it's supposed to be, and you intended to read your Bible? How many times have you scheduled time in your day and said, I'm going to get along with God. I'm going to pray during this season. You see, it's easy to start out in obedience. But it's hard to complete the obedience very often. And Saul was like this. Saul, he did everything right at the outset. He he had the army he needed. He went to the place. I believe sometimes we're a little rough on King Saul. But the fact is, I think Saul started the right way. But it goes to show you, just because you start the right way does not mean you'll end the right way. You can't make a good finish unless you make a good start. But making a good start does not guarantee a good finish. You've got to follow through in obedience. I see his obedience commence. Where did it all go off the rails? Look at verse 8. I think we have a little hint here. The Bible says, And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. Here we see his obedience compromised. He started off well. And he did most of what God commanded. But here, you know what we find? He left a little room, just a little opening for disobedience to grow. Very often, we start off the right way, but then we get to reassessing God's plan and we decide there's a little room for improvement. I do not know what his intention was. I can speculate as easily as you can. Probably he he thought that it would be good for the morale of of Israel. Probably it would help solidify his uh, throne as the king. If he could march that Amalekite king uh, through the city streets, and if he could show they could have a big parade, and uh, much like David would experience later on when he would dance in the streets, Saul said, this is my moment. What a shame it would be to waste this king, killing him out here in the wilderness. And no one, it wasn't, it wasn't, Nobody, you know, recording it on their phone. It wasn't going to go viral. Amen. And so he was probably thinking, hey, why waste this good opportunity by simply killing him? Can I tell you something? Obedience is never wasted when it's obedience to the Lord. You see, it really comes down to a fundamental question of faith and submission. Do we believe God's right and are we willing to let him be in control? At this moment in Saul's life, he wavers, he falters on this matter of faith and submission. And he says, you know, I know God wants Agag to be killed with the rest of them. I know He wants all these sheep to be slain, all these oxen. I know He wants all this livestock dead. But maybe I know better than God. And so he he leaves a little room. He is, by the way, he is mostly obedient. Let me say that again. He is mostly obedient. He killed most of the Amalekites. He killed a good portion of the livestock. He is mostly obedient. And you know what that makes him? Altogether disobedient. 
When Samuel shows up, he doesn't say, well, hey, you almost got there, Saul. When he shows up, he doesn't say, well, you know, Saul, you really, you could have done a lot worse. <laughs> My little boy does this all the time. We'll, uh, we'll fuss at him for something. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll say like, hey, why'd you break that toy? And he'll say, I don't know. You know, we'll fuss at him and everything. And then everything will get quiet and he'll say, well, at least I don't have, at least these other toys aren't broken. At least I didn't break these other toys. Well, here's a gold star, son. Congratulations. You're not a tornado. You're not an utter plague and scourge upon our, our, our goods in our house. We appreciate you only breaking part of the things that we bought you. Now, you're laughing. You know why you're laughing? Because it's foolish. So why then do we look at God and say, Well, God, I know I've not been obedient in this matter or that matter, but hey, I go to church. Hey, I read my Bible some. Hey, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Saul said, I've killed most of them. Samuel said, there's either obedient or disobedience. Either obedient or disobedient, Saul. There is no in-between. His obedience was compromised, and then we see his obedience corrupted. Verse 9, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen of the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. Now, this is interesting. Look what it says. But everything that was vile and refuse, that they utterly destroyed. Now, this is interesting because if you read back in the book of, of Joshua and you read about the, the uh, destruction and the conquest of the city of Jericho, you find a very important truth that God's perspective is the defining perspective. That if God says something is accursed or unclean or vile, that it is God denoting it as such that makes it such and not our perspective or perception of whether it is. You remember whenever the city of Jericho was conquered, God had given the commandment that they were not to take any of the spoil unto themselves. And you know how that Achan, uh, he, he lied and he stole from God and he to- took the silver and the gold and the Babylonian garment. But it's interesting because God does not just call those things off limits. He says they are accursed. And point in fact, they were. In fact, Achan's name means trouble. It means troubled. It, mean, it means uh, set contrary against what is right and what is God. And what do we find? We find that those things became a curse to Achan's family. Because he took those things, uh, God destroyed Achan and his family. By the way, they would go on immediately after that and destroy the little city of Ai. And you know what God would say? God would say, you can take all the spoil to yourself. You know, I don't think there was anything on a molecular level that was different between the golden Ai and the golden Jericho. But there was sure enough something different on a spiritual level. You know why? Because God had said that gold in Jericho, that silver in Jericho, those garments in in Jericho, all the goods in Jericho were accursed. So in other words, Saul says, well, we made a distinction here, Samuel. There's some stuff that's vile, that's refuse. There's other stuff that's good stuff. And we we just kept what is good... And we just destroyed what is not good. How many times do we look at God and say, God, let me tweak your your plan a little bit. And let me tell you what I think is worth saving and what I think is worth destroying. For in fact, these things were as vile as the other things. You know why? Because God had said all of them are to be destroyed. We see His obedience corrupted. Not only was His obedience corrupted, but His obedience corrupted Him. Now all of a sudden He's telling God what's right and what's wrong. Now all of a sudden He's telling God what is vile and what is clean, what is good, and what needs to be destroyed. 
His whole perspective is, God, let me tell you. Let me tell you. We see the trail of disobedience. Then I want you to notice the testimony of disobedience. In other words, let me say it this way. He got found out. How did he get found out? When did he get found out? Look at verse number 10. The Bible says, then. What does the word then mean? It it affixes something to a point in time, doesn't it? it? It says, this happened and then this happened. In close correlation and in chronological order, these two things are connected. So Saul kept all of the the, the sheep and and kept all of the oxen, kept the fatlings, kept the lambs, kept Agag. And then, in direct response to his disobedience, then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he has turned back from following me and hath not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. Let me say this, that the testimony of Saul's disobedience was instant. Before Saul ever even knew he was found out, he was found out. And God knew immediately the moment that disobedience prevailed in the heart and actions of Saul. You know, very often we tend to think if we can get away with it, then it must not be wrong. Our entire political system is framed on the principle, if you can get away with it, it must not be wrong. Society in general. Nowadays, we're not asking what's right and wrong. We're asking what's legal and illegal. As though that is the predominant feature and character and, and, and deciphering and defining thing. I got news for you. There's lots of things you can get away with as far as the law of the land is concerned with that you will never get away with concerning the law of the Lord. And just because it is legalized does not mean it is sanctified. Just because society says it is okay does not mean God says it is okay. And the moment that we disobey the Lord, God is aware of it. The testimony was instant. Let me say number two. Look down. This is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. I don't know why. I guess the imagery of it, the dramatic nature of it. But look what it says in verse number 13. And Samuel came to Saul. Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. He sounds real proud, doesn't he? He's, I'm going to say a word about this here in a moment, but he's bluffing. He knows he hadn't obeyed God. But he's saying, hey, he's saying, well, maybe if I project the right image, I can fool Samuel. And Samuel said, what meaneth then the bleeding of the sheep in mine ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Can I say this? The testimony of his disobedience, it was instant, but not only that, it was apparent. It was apparent. Think about the foolishness of, of this strategy from, from Saul's standpoint. He says, well, when Sa- here comes Samuel, I'm just going to pretend like everything's cool. I'm just going to pretend like everything's fine. I'm just going to pretend like I've done what God said. Meanwhile, there are literally herds of sheep, Agag, standing behind him. You see, here's the reality of it. God knew he was guilty. But not only did God know he was guilty, Samuel knew he was guilty. But not only did Samuel know he was guilty, Saul knew he was guilty. It wasn't no secret to anybody. Again, we live in a society today where we feel as though if we can ignore and dismiss and bluff our way into a place of peace and into a place of of a steady conscience, that that'll be enough. But the fact is, listen, when we know the clear commandment of God, it's apparent to us, it's apparent to God, it's apparent to the people that God has put in our lives to guide us and to lead us. We ain't fooling anybody. And the sooner that we'll get honest with God, the sooner God can begin to work in our heart and begin to right the ship and change our trajectory.
This testimony was apparent. But then I want you to think about this with me. This testimony was resilient. Now look at verse number 15. And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. Now here is where he's offering his explanation. Right? Saul has, Samuel has walked up and said, Saul, why are all these sheep here? Why are all these oxen here? And, and Saul says, well, I'll just explain it to you. I'll just give you an excuse. I, I'll tell you that I wanted to do right, but the people decided to do this, and it's really not my fault. And really, we had good intentions, Samuel, because we're, why waste all these animals? We could just sacrifice these to God. Did it work? Well, the Bible says, verse 16, Then Samuel said unto Saul, Stay, and I will tell thee what the Lord hath said to me this night. This night. You notice what he said there. So, the prior night, you remember, the Hebrew day starts in the evening, goes to the next day. It's morning when he's talking to Saul. So when he says this night, he's talking about the past eight hours, the past twelve hours, whatever it might be. And he's saying this. He goes up to Saul and says, Saul, you've sinned against God. You've disobeyed God. And Saul says, well, no, I really haven't. This is what I've done. And Samuel says... You just wait and stay here. I'm going to tell you what God has already told me. Here's what I'm getting at. What Saul said didn't change the equation. Let me say it this way. The testimony of his disobedience was resilient. What God said the first time He meant. And nothing that Saul could say could undo what God already knew, what Samuel already knew, and what Saul already knew. It's interesting when you look at the tactics that Saul employs. It's almost, if I'm being frank, it's almost like watching a child or a teenager try to squirm their way out of trouble. Because he tries basically four things. He tries to shift things in four ways. Look back at verse number 13. We read it already, but look at it. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. You know what he was trying to do here? He was trying to shift the attention away from his disobedience. There's animals, there's oxen and sheep walking all around him, and Saul says, Hey, Samuel, pay attention up there. Look at me. I'm telling you that I have obeyed. You know, very often when we have disobeyed, we will try to shift the attention away from our disobedience to what we perceive to be our obedience. Saul has already done this in some ways. He said, well, I've killed most of the Amalekites. Don't don't pay attention to the livestock back here. Don't pay attention to Agag. Look at where I have obeyed. Don't look at where I haven't obeyed. He tried to shift the attention away from his disobedience. Can I tell you something? The Holy Ghost is relentless. And try as you may to point to your places of obedience and ignoring your disobedience, the Holy Ghost will always come back to that place of disobedience and say, until you get this right, son, you're not going to be right. By the way, let me say this, because it matters a little later on in the preaching, that in this day, the Holy Spirit would come upon people. In fact, it's interesting, in the Old Testament, you see the Spirit of God quite often. But He's never indwelling someone. He's either upon them, or He is before them, or He is beside them, or He is behind them. He goes before them in battle in the mulberry trees. He, he, he dwells upon them in helping them prophesy, or, or, or speak truth, or perform a, a, an action. But the Holy Spirit is never indwelling them. To this king in Israel, this wasn't, I don't believe, true of everyone, but for Saul, in his role as king, Samuel, in his role as prophet, in many ways, Samuel was like the Holy Ghost to Saul. 
He was the voice of God. He was the, the spiritual compass in his life. It was Samuel's responsibility to tell Saul when he had done wrong, when he had disobeyed. It was his responsibility to comfort Saul if something had gone wrong in Saul's life and to encourage him to follow and to trust the Lord. Samuel was like the Holy Ghost for Saul. And we find that every, no matter what Saul did, Samuel would not take his attention off of Saul's disobedience. I see that he tried to shift the attention. Notice this. This is interesting. Look at verse 15. And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. You know what he tried to do? He tried to shift the goalposts. He tried to redefine what obedience is. God had said destroy everything. Saul says, you know, Samuel, we got to thinking about that and it just simply did not make sense. Instead, it makes more sense. This is what obedience should look like, Samuel. It should look like what we've done here. It should look like keeping the best and destroying the worst. But that's not what obedience was. God had given a very clear, very distinct command. And we very often will try to go back and and renegotiate with God and say, well, you know, Lord, I know you told me to do. Lord, I know you told me uh, to get rid of this sin. But really, do I have to get rid of this sin? Really, could I not get rid of the worst examples of it and keep these other things? Lord, does it not make sense to do it in this way or that way? i got news for you. When God utters a command, when God gives you a command, when God reveals something in Scripture, when God says something is sin, it is sin. There is no way in which we can beautify it or sanctify it or glorify it or rectify it. If it is sin, it is sin very clearly. In the Word of God. He tried to shift the goalposts. Then, this is interesting, he tried to shift the blame. Look at verse 20. And Saul said unto Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. Really? Really, Saul, you have? Yeah. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. And I've gone the way which the Lord sent me, and have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Well, here's the first problem. Everything he just said was not obedience. It was partial obedience. But now notice what he, the, the, the issue at question here right now is these oxen and these lambs and these herds. Verse 21, he says, But the people, it was the people, they took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the chief of the things which have been, should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. He tried to shift the blame. He tried to say, you know, it really wasn't me. I did everything God asked. But it was really the people that did things. It was really the people that disobeyed the Lord. Can I ask you a very simple question? If it ain't you, then why is the Holy Ghost dealing with you? If it's somebody else, why ain't He dealing with them instead of you? If you've really done nothing wrong, hey, the righteous are bold as a lion, the wicked flee when no man pursueth. If you've really done nothing wrong, why are you afraid of talking to the Lord about it? Are you afraid of asking Him to search you and try you and see if there be any wicked or unclean way within you to cleanse you? The fact of the matter is, He tried to shift the blame. But if the blame had gone to the people, Samuel would have been talking to the people. He wasn't talking to the people. He was talking to Saul. Remember, Samuel's functions as the Holy Ghost in Saul's life at this moment. He would have been talking to them, but he was talking to Saul. And then notice the final tactic he gives. Look at verse 24. And Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned. Well, now we're making progress, it would seem. Right? Okay, alright, Saul. This is what we need. You just had to admit you were wrong. Ask God's forgiveness. Now we can move forward. 
But he says this, For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and thy words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. And yet it's funny. Before the people ever got together and said, Why don't we keep these livestock? Saul had already decided to spare Agag. In fact, from the moment that they came face to face while the battle is still raging, Saul made a moment, a decision in that moment to say, I'm not going to kill Agag. The fact is, his disobedience was not the responsibility of anyone else, and he did not do it out of fear of anyone else. He did it for one simple reason. He thought he knew better than God, and he was not willing to obey God's command. You know what he tried to do? He tried to shift the narrative. He tried to say, you know, really, Samuel, I, I wanted to do the right thing, but I just got scared. I was just scared of the people. And this is why, really, Samuel, I'm a victim here. Really, I'm a victim. Really, I, I want to do the right thing. I would have done the right thing, but I couldn't do the right thing because I was just too cowardly. I was just too scared. I was just too weak. And yet God never commands us to do anything that He will not equip, enable, and empower us to do. We very often, I wanted to do the right thing but I just couldn't see a way how. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. I don't believe it's true in my life. I don't believe it's true in your life. I believe anything God instructs us to do, He will enable us to do. And for us to attempt to say, it's really not my fault, it's everyone else's, is just an attempt to try to shift the blame, shift the consequences to someone else. Did this matter? Did it change anything? Well, I would say this. Look at what the Lord Himself says down in verse number 28. Samuel said unto him, The Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day, and hath given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. Saul, there's nothing you can say that's going to change what God and me and you already know. Your only hope, Saul, is to repent. I see the testimony of disobedience. Let me say a word about these famous, these very familiar verses in verse 22 and 23. Saul, Samuel really nails them to the wall here and says in verse 22, "...hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams." For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. Notice with me the truth about disobedience. And I'm going I'm to move through this very quickly, but I want you to notice in verse 22, the appraisal of disobedience. Saul says, you don't understand, Samuel. We really chose the better thing to do. God is going to benefit far more from our plan than from his plan. But you know what we find? We find that Saul's disobedience negated any good that could have been done by any of those animals. God didn't want those animals if they were kept in disobedience. God had more animals than He needed. God is the master of the universe, the creator of all things. If all He wanted was sheep and oxen, He could speak them into existence. It was never about those things. It was about the obedience of His King. And God's appraisal is this. Saul, I'd rather have your obedience. I'd rather have your obedience than have the spoils from this battle. Can I tell you something? You know what God's interested in your life? He's interested in your complete, unmitigated surrender to Him. Your obedience to Him. That's what He really covets. That's what He really desires. That's what He really longs after. And nothing we do in the strength of disobedience is valuable in the eyes of God. 
There's not a single lesson we teach or sermon we preach or song we sing or anything that we do. There's not a single task we perform that if it's done in a heart of disobedience is valuable in the eyes of God. God says, I don't want any of that. What I want is your obedience. I see the appraisal of disobedience. Look at verse 23, man. This is strong language. He says, for rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft. What does he mean by that? Witchcraft in the Bible has very distinct meaning. It means sorcery. It means it means uh, inter- interacting with what the Bible calls familiar spirits. It is satanic in nature. It has to do with opening your heart and opening your mind and opening your life to the powers of darkness. So what does God mean when He says this? Well, I would say this. I want you to notice the alliance of disobedience. You know, the purpose of witchcraft, and, I, and I, I, we don't have time to get into all of it. People have often asked me about, about demonic possession and, and witchcraft and things like this and the occult. And does it happen today? And Oh, yes, it does happen. Don't misunderstand me. It does happen. But people have often asked this question, you know, demon possession. Are people possessed with demons today? I believe they are. I believe it's probably more prevalent in some other places in the world than it is today. What we consider scripturally is demonic possession, the inhabiting of a person by a demonic being and the wielding of them and the bending of their will to it. I think it's probably a lot more prevalent in other places in the world than it is today. I think that there are probably cases in which people are very sick and, and that gives way and opens doors to some things. But can I put it very simply? I think the reason that we don't see as many supernatural expressions of Satan's power today in the West is very simply because the West is already under his sway. He doesn't need to turn rods into serpents. He's already got people. He's already got... Hey, listen, why why does he need to perform miracles? He's got Hollywood. He's got CGI, man. He's got all that. Hey, listen, why why does he need people making incantations? He's already got the music industry. Why does he need all that? Why would would he need sexual temples and and places of lasciviousness and, and wild deeds? He's already got the average relationship, the average home. He's already got the industry of sex that exists in our society today. See, very simply, I would say this. Does the occult exist? Does demonic possession exist? Does witchcraft exist? Absolutely it does. But I think it's growing more and more irrelevant because Satan doesn't need it. He's already got the hearts and minds of most people. And he's already got the culture. And he's already got the politics. And he's already got science. And he's already got all these things. What would he use those things for? See, the fact of the matter is this. You know why rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft? Because it accomplishes more effectively what witchcraft accomplishes. It co-ops our will and puts it under the direct jurisdiction, authority, and influence that Satan desires. When we're rebellious against God, very simply, we're already doing what Satan wants. We're already doing. What was Satan's uh, sin, the grand sin that introduced sin to the human experience or to God's creative uh, world? It was when Satan said, I will arise and be like the Most High. When he said, I'm tired of seeing him set on the throne and I'm down here. I'm going to arise. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to run my life. I'm going to run all things. That rebellion was what began all of it. When we are rebellious against God, we're operating in that same spirit and to that same end. We may never think I want to kick God off of His throne in heaven, but we are saying I'm going to kick Him off His throne in my heart. And I'm going to run my life. I see the alliance of disobedience. And then notice the antagonism of disobedience. 
It says it's stubbornness. Oh my. Go ahead and close your Bible there. We don't want to go there, do we? I feel like i got to stretch. Stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Those are very distinct words. Iniquity cares heavily the connotation of transgressing God's law. When we use the term sin, which means missing the mark, it denotes our imperfection and our lacking of the standard of God's holiness. But the term iniquity carries deeply with it the idea that here God has set a boundary and we are stepping over that boundary. It says stubbornness is like walking across the Word of God. It's like stepping over the boundary and the law of God. He says it's like idolatry. Now, most of us would probably never imagine getting engaged with or practicing in literal explicit idolatry. I think everybody in this room probably understands that that, that little idols and statues and rosaries and crucifixes carry no divine power and have no ability to hear your prayers or answer your prayers or get you to God or make you more spiritual. Let me tell you what a lot of us do. We'll put ourselves up as an idol and we'll worship the plans and the will and the practices and the passions of self. And we'll worship us as opposed to worshiping God. By the way, I think there's a strong argument to be made that the very defining idolatry of our day is secular humanism. We're living in that time when that great golden statue that Nebuchadnezzar built is being worshipped. Where the image of man is being worshipped. Where the will of man is being worshipped. Where the autonomy and authority and supremacy of man is being set forth. Stubbornness is as idolatry. It puts God off the throne puts us on the throne. I see in this passage the truth about disobedience. And finally, and I'm going to make these statements and be done, I want you to think with me about the tragedy of disobedience. Three things happened in Saul's life because he wouldn't obey God. Notice them with me. Verse 26, Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee. Now, this is important, so I'm going to make a statement about it. Saul looks at Samuel and says, I know God has taken the kingdom from me, but turn back with me and let's go out here in front of the people. Let's offer a sacrifice and let's worship the Lord. And initially, Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee, for thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord hath rejected thee from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned about to go away, he laid hold upon the skirt of his mantle and rent, and it rent. Saul grabbed uh, the, the mantle, the prophetic cloak of Samuel, and it tore. And Samuel said unto him, The Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day, and hath given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. Think with me about the crown that he surrendered. Think about what, what his life could have been like if he would have just obeyed God. Man, he had, a good, he had a good son, Jonathan, that loved God, that loved Him, that loved Israel. He had a good grandson. By the way, his grandson wound up a cripple. And it can all be led back to this moment. It was when the kingdom was being rent from Saul that Mephibosheth was dropped and was crippled for life. It's a reminder that our disobedience doesn't just cripple us. It cripples generations. Imagine, just think with me for a moment. We're coming into the Christmas season, alright? Let's, let's look at old King Saul's ghost of Christmas future and what it could have been. Imagine him as an old man seated with his family around him with Jonathan seated upon the throne ruling and reigning with a young, strong, healthy Mephibosheth uh, living and ruling and reigning beside his father with his son Michael uh, getting prepped and getting ready to be trained up. 
Imagine Saul dwelling in the glory and presence of the Lord. Saul, a man, being. imagine if he had been the one. Imagine if Jonathan had built the temple. Imagine how different it could have been. But in this moment, Saul was willing to give all that up so that he could drag this old pagan king back and parade him in front of the Israelites. Which, by the way, never even happened anyway. Samuel kills Agag on the spot. You know what I've found? The thing that you think your disobedience will, will procure, the thing that you think through your disobedience you will enjoy, the Holy Ghost will cut to pieces before you ever get to taste the sweetness of it. The thing that you think is going to satisfy you, that's causing you to walk away from God, to disobey God, if you're a child of God, the Holy Ghost will take the sword of the Spirit and will cut it up before you ever get to enjoy it. He never got to bring Agag back. Think about the crown that he surrendered. Something else interesting happens here. So, Saul turns and looks at Samuel. This is astounding. Samuel looks at him and says, the kingdom is going to be rent from you. It's going to be given to another. I don't want somebody else enjoying my blessings, by the way. Not at my expense. I don't want somebody else getting the will of God for my life. I don't want somebody else getting the plan of God for my life. I want to enjoy the will of God for my life. I want to enjoy the blessings of God. Now, you'd think Saul would be pretty tore up about this. You'd think he'd be broken. But instead, he looks at Samuel and he redoubles this thing about going back and worshiping with him. He says, honor me now before the elders of Israel. Turn back with me and let's go worship. This is fascinating. You know what Saul was doing? He was saying, I know I've lost the favor of God. I know God doesn't want to hear from me. And I know God's not going to answer me. I know that God is done with me in my life. I know the kingdom is over. But Samuel, let's just go back and pretend. Because we have to keep up appearances. Think about the course that he set. He began to live as a hypocrite this day. He began to live as a fake this day. This was the day that Saul took the mask out of the box and put it on and never took it off again. You know what happens when we choose our disobedience over God? Most of us, most of us are too spiritual, quote-unquote, too hypocritical is really the right word to really give up on God completely. You know what most of us will do? We'll keep coming to church and pretending that we're okay with Him. We'll keep coming to church and pretending that nothing's wrong. We'll keep coming to church and pretending like everything's alright and like we're not living in disobedience. When you learn to live as a phony and a hypocrite, there's no stopping the slide of your spiritual degradation. I see the course that he set. But then notice the communion that he scorned. It's one of the saddest verses in the whole Bible. Remember I told you that for Saul, Samuel is the Holy Spirit. Now, I, I, I'm not saying that Samuel was literally an incarnation of the Holy but I'm saying he functioned that way. If Saul wanted to know something from God, he talked to Samuel. In fact, later on in his life, he would go to a witch at Endor and he would ask her to conjure up Samuel because he was getting ready to go into battle and he didn't know what to do. You know why he had to do that? Look what it says in verse 34. Then Samuel went to Ramah, this direction. Saul went up to his house to Gibeah of Saul, that direction. And Samuel came no more to see Saul till the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul. And the Lord repented that He had made Saul king over Israel. Now before I make my closing statement, let me make this statement. I believe that the Holy Ghost never leaves a believer. 
Christ said that. He said, he'll, he'll be with you always. He'll never leave you. And I don't want you to misconstrue what I'm about to say. I don't believe there's anything we can do to lose our salvation. I don't believe there's anything we can do to lose the indwelling of the Holy Ghost. But by the way, Saul didn't lose Samuel. He just lost his relationship with Samuel. Samuel was still there, but they just quit talking. Samuel didn't quit caring about Saul. In fact, you know what happened? Saul grieved Samuel. And so there was nothing else for Samuel and Saul to talk about except for Saul's persistent disobedience. And Saul didn't want to hear nothing about that. So he said, Samuel, if you ain't got nothing to talk to me about except my disobedience, don't even come visit me anymore. Don't even come see me anymore. That was Saul's choice. Samuel was still there. Samuel was ready at any moment to come back in and to begin to commune with Saul and, and encourage call, uh, Saul and, and direct Saul. But Saul didn't want that because Samuel could not come back into his life without that disobedience being dealt with. So here sits Saul, a proud hypocrite on the throne of Israel. God not within a million miles of his life. And over there sits Samuel, weeping, crying, broken. Because he wants nothing more than for Saul to get right. But there's no conversation to be had until Saul's willing to give up his disobedience and submit to the Lord. You know, the New Testament tells us that we're to grieve not the Holy Spirit whereby we are sealed under the day of redemption. You know what that means? Sealed under the day of redemption. It means we ain't getting rid of Him and He ain't getting rid of us. So we better get this thing fixed or we're going to live a miserable life. We're going to live out of communion with God. We're going to live without the comfort and guidance and instruction of the Holy Spirit, not because He's left us, but because He don't want to talk about anything until we can get that thing right. And if we're satisfied too, we can sit on our throne with our mask on and die in misery and brokenness and shame. And He'll sit over there in Rama and just weep for us and just weep over our disobedience. You don't have to live your life that way. If you're willing to surrender your heart to the Lord, if you're willing to, to get this matter settled, submit it to God, ask His forgiveness, move ahead, guess what? He's ready for you to move ahead. But until you deal with that thing, you're never going to be able to go forward in your relationship with the Lord. Let's